Hey, we've been talking about um, shaping uh, a new generation, really, of people that are ready for living in this day and time. This is a time when people do not listen to your arguments. They watch your life. They're not worried about your worldview. They're watching your marriage and the way that you treat people and how hard you work. And it's the little things that we don't pay attention to. That's how people decide what kind of a life they want. And the more appealing ours is, then the better chance we have to stay relevant in this world. I'm encouraged that throughout this series, people of different ages are engaging. Some of you are writing me emails. Some of you are uh, stopping me or you're calling. Um, I even got word last week that one of our children, um, she's about eight years old, Everly Mandura, she's pastor's kid, so she's got to be this way. She's taken notes, actually, in that little current book, and she came up afterwards, or her parents did, and they said she's taken notes while you're speaking last Sunday, and this is what she wrote. You better be careful or you will get pulled away in the current and end up a Lions fan. (laughs) (laughs) that is a fate worse than death isn't it and I I was first I was pretty um, I was you know pretty disappointed because I thought well wait a minute man that wasn't the point of the message it was a salient point I will add but it wasn't the point of the message but then I remembered that was like 10 or 12 minutes into the sermon, that's pretty good to be like eight years old and still tracking. Man, her mom and dad checked out five minutes before she did. (laughs) She has a younger sister who's like uh, five years old, Ellie. And uh, as I was speaking last week, and I just kind of made the flippant statement, I said, you know, for a good time, you call Lady Folly, but for a good life, you call Lady Wisdom. And just with total innocence, Ellie looked up at her mother and goes, Mommy, which one should I choose? (laughs) Like, this is multiple. If you see her, say wisdom. Choose wisdom. Because apparently I didn't close that loop for for her. On the screen, you've got some powerful verses that reflect the nature of the heart. As water reflects a person's face, so a person's heart reflects the person. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a person who has no control over his heart. Boy, you get the the image, don't you? So guard your heart and keep vigilant watch over it because that's where life starts. Take a moment and think of your hometown, the city that you grew up in, or at least the one you graduated from high school Name the city or the high school and the mascot. you got five seconds to the person next to you. Hometown or high school in the name of the mascot. Five seconds. <laughs> all right, you guys. Ah, all right, all right, all right. My goodness, how many high schools did you graduate from? Some of you didn't graduate because you're just sitting there, and the other ones must have graduated from four or five high schools. You can't remember the mascot. Has it been that long ago, really? So I want you to imagine that you're back in your hometown right now, and you're there for the weekend, and uh, you run into someone that you were in school with, and the person says, hey, there's going to be a reunion tonight. We'd love to have you come. 
So you decide to go to the reunion and you're sitting there in this high school reunion with people that you used to go to high school with. I mean, as I'm speaking, think of their pictures, you know, their, their names, their faces and how you got to know them. And uh, you start swapping stories and talking about how, what people ended up doing and what you were doing when you were in high school. And you start to wonder, how is it that some people that were just like most likely to succeed, they hit a certain point and they leveled off and you almost never heard from them again. And then there were other people that were really quiet. They kind of flew under the radar, but they went on to go and get this accomplishment or they now run this large company. And you're like, man, how did that happen? You're talking about Gary. He was going to go play for the NFL. Now he's selling insurance. Never did play any. And he's doing all right. He's just not playing for the NFL, though the Lions might have him. You're thinking about Vic, who said he was going to be a millionaire, and now when you talk to him, he, he, can, he really can't find a job or stay in it. Shauna said she was never going to get married. Now she's married, happily married. She's got three kids, and you start talking about some people that ended up in jail and other people that just ended up doing really well. This person hated school, and now they have a PhD, and they're in the university. <laughs> Does God have a sense of humor or what? So you're, so you're telling these stories in the, back and forth, and, and, and in the car, as you drive back to the hotel, you're having a conversation trying to understand the difference between lives. You say, I mean, how was it? Because, you know, some were going to take off and they just, and others are just kind of low and now they took off. What's the difference? And so you start alluding to things that are really like acts. You start saying, well, one of the differences, some of them went and got an education, they went to college, and others didn't, they joined the military, and the others didn't, and that was the deciding factor, and you're probably right. And some, you say, they, uh, they got married, they married, a, they married well, you know, up, and others didn't marry so well, and, and, and that was a really huge decision. So what I would like to do this morning is to try to paint another picture, not because I think that those other narratives are wrong, but because I think there is room in this discussion. How is it that two lives went in different directions after we graduated? I think there's room in the discussion for another narrative. I'd like you to consider that the difference between two lives might be on how each one of you managed desire. Everybody has it. In your conversation, you start to note that there were some people who did exactly what they wanted to do and their lives ended up really well. And there were other people who did exactly what they wanted to do and their lives were filled with chaos. And while you're tempted to say, I think it was because they made different decisions and you're right, I think desire occurs earlier in the river than decisions do. I think desires are tiny little currents that we can step in and out of with almost no immediate consequence except for this. It becomes easier to do that again. But that isn't earth-shattering. It doesn't alter the end of your life. But it's easier to do it again. So in your conversation, you say, well, how is it that two people 
Both of them doing exactly what they wanted. Some ended up really peaceful and their life is full and it's open and thriving and other people are filled with drama and stress and it's chaotic. And then you start talking about people who feel trapped. People that wished they could do certain things but because they got caught up in some kind of a religion or they got some latent parent voice saying, no, 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 no. They feel suppressed. They feel that their desire, they feel that the person they really want to become, whatever that is, is muted, trapped. Desire is a powerful force. Even now when I say it, some of you are thinking, man, I've never even thought about that before. And you know why? It's because it is so deep-rooted in us that the, the time span between desiring something and acting on something is almost nil. We are almost automatic in the way that we respond. Somewhere I have read that only 5% of the stuff that we do, you and I do in an average day, is the result of conscious, intelligent, deliberate, intentional choice. The other 95% are along some continuum of automation. You got up this morning, you made coffee, you got dressed, you drove or you walked to church, all of that was not intentional and deliberate. All of it was automatic, pre-programmed. So it was very easy for you to do it. But even before that stage, it's the stage of desire. Jamie Smith writes that we are, we are embodied people that our spirituality is more physical, intangible than we often want to admit. It is rooted in this world. It is tied to creation. It's not stuck in between your ears. It's not something ethereal or something eccentric. It acts. It touches in consistent patterns. So please, this morning, whether you've never thought about it before or whether just a few moments ago you said to yourself, oh no, I don't want to go there. Um, would, you, would you take a moment and think about the power of desire, yours? What has it given you? Your desires, I mean. What has it made possible for you right now? What habits have you developed in response to doing what you desire? What has it cost you? What has it given to you? I was five years old when I first felt it. I was in Lake Michigan, up near Ludington, it's farther north, and um, we were out in the water. <clears throat> My dad was on shore because he doesn't swim. But his friend was out there with us, and I was in water about up to my knees. And in Ludington, not like the lower parts of the state, the waves hit suddenly. The shore is shallow, so you don't go out very far, and you're in over your head. So when the waves hit, they hit hard. And I was in water up to my knees, and all of a sudden... Tim, my dad's friend, would go underwater and out of fun, he would grab 
the kid's ankles and just pull them out from under them. I look at it now and go, what a sadist, you know. You're standing there as a five-year-old, and all of a sudden, both feet are up in the air, and you're underwater. You barely have time to breathe, and he would just laugh and laugh and laugh. And on one occasion, I felt him grab my ankles, and I braced myself, and this time, he did not tip me over. And so I turned to wait for him to come up so I could yell at him, and, and I realized he was already up. He was 15 feet away, like right over there, still above the water. And I looked and I said, did, how, did, did you just grab my ankles? He said, no, I swear, I never touched your ankles. He said, I promise you. I said, something just grabbed my ankles. What was it? He said, it was an undertow. I didn't know what an undertow was. But you know what it is, don't you? It's when a wave breaks on the shore and then it starts to go back out to sea while another one comes in. And what you see is the wave that is coming at you. What you don't see is the one returning going underneath it. And you, what you feel is the ground under your feet starts to erode. Have you felt it? The sand starts to leave your toes and you think like you're going another foot deeper? That's an undertow. So I spent the next, you know, 15, 20 years in Michigan and all the Great Lakes having, a, even God has a cottage, so he probably goes in. So I just loved it. I used to get used to the undertow. It was not that really big of a thing to me. And so a few years ago when Jeff Fussner, a friend of mine, uh, was with me out in New Zealand where I was, I was speaking, he said, we ought to go body surfing. I was all in for this, only this is in the Pacific. So we go out in the Pacific, and these waves, <laughs> these waves make Lake Michigan look like a bathtub, man. They are hitting with force and power. We would run out about up to our waist and then turn around as the wave came and fall on the bodyboard, and I have never been hit with such force. Literally pick you up and throw you onto the beach so that when the wave retreats, you are on bone-dry sand. That is powerful. When we went back and forth, first into our knees, then to our waist, then out a little further, having the time of our life, went on about an hour and a half, and then we went back to a Bible study. I was telling stories of this that night in Bible study, and one of the guys was there listening, and he lives in the air. He's been out there many times. He listened incredulously, and finally he said, where exactly did you say you were? Told him where we were, and he said, did you know where you were? Huh? He said, do you understand that, that the riptide in that part of the world is among some of the strongest riptides in the entire world? People die out there. Huh? He said, have you ever surfed before? Huh? Did you not see the red flags? I'm really glad you had a good time, he said, but next time, I hope you're a little wiser. A riptide is due to the moon, the gravitational pull. The tide goes out, it makes the currents even stronger. So when the waters go out, they go fast. A rip current is a stream of water that moves along the shore, and suddenly it moves out to sea. It moves at about five miles an hour, and because it's a narrow stream, it's a pretty concentrated flow of water, and when you get in it, it pulls you quickly out to sea. An undertow is what comes underneath your feet and starts 
pulling away at the ground you are standing on. More than 40 people die in Australia every year in riptides. More than 100 in the United States. Over 80% of all life-saving mechanisms in the U.S. are due to riptides. If you went into the ocean this morning, you are far more likely to die in a riptide than to be eaten by a shark, but I bet you're more afraid of the shark. Two years ago, an 11-year-old girl was swept out by a riptide. She still has never been found. Her 10-year-old brother was found unconscious, floating face-up, alive, but barely 30 minutes after they presumed she was gone, another person said 30 seconds ago, my girlfriend was on the beach taking pictures of us and we're all laughing and having a good time. And then 30 seconds later, we are all fighting for our lives. Desire is a riptide. It's a rip current. It's an undertow. It starts really subtle and slow. You can feel the gentle pull. You can feel it starting to pull or erode the ground underneath your feet. And so you brace yourself. You laugh a little. You take a step back and think, here's where I'll anchor myself. But no, now you're in deeper and the pull is even stronger. And then you take another step back and say, no, no, now I've got it for sure. But it keeps eroding. And before long, you get caught in a current that pulls you out to sea. And listen, I know some of you are amazing swimmers, and I know you guys are incredible athletes, but you have to understand when you're in a riptide, you are in the force of the earth. These things are oceanic in their power. There is no chance that you can jump out of a riptide anytime you want. You can escape them, but not just like that. There's two ways out. One is to never go in deep enough to get caught. Stay in water shallow enough, if you will, boring enough, that you won't get pulled too deep. And two, when you're in it, you better know how to swim. And swim with the current at a diagonal until you hit the periphery and then you can catch the next surf home. Desire works like that. It starts to erode all of your reason, all of your faculties, all of your emotions, even your spirituality itself starts to follow the thing you desire so that at the end of the day, you are not primarily a thinking being, you are a feeling being. You follow what you love, not just what you believe in. Probably the opposite is true. You believe in stuff you love. As human beings, our heart goes after things, and then our minds follow suit and start to justify them and structure them and organize them. So we have to be very careful about the desires. In Proverbs, we shouldn't be surprised that there are two kinds of desires. This week I read through all of Proverbs again and I looked for verses that talked about desire and I paraphrased them. And what I found, I'll put them on the screen, is that desires flow in two different streams. There are desires that make you better and those that cause us dread. 
There are those that deliver us and those that enslave us. Those that end in good and those that end in wrath. There are desires that can only be defended by a stronghold or by other evils such as deceit or hypocrisy or violence. And there are desires with character built right into them. There are desires that you can satisfy and some that you can only indulge. There are those that renew you like a tree of life and those that drain your life and your resources away. There are those that are led by knowledge and there are those that are led by impulse. And so the first thing we can do this morning, you guys, is to say, I admit that I have desires and to start asking ourselves, which current really are my desires in? The way that we control desires in the book of Proverbs is the heart. The heart is the secret. Whoever controls the heart gets the desire. And so when Proverbs says that the heart, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Above all else, guard the heart, for out of it are the issues of life. A person with an open heart is like a city with an open wall. Anything can get into it. As water reflects a person's face, so does a person's heart reflect all of a person's life. In the Bible, the heart is not just an organ. The heart is the center of your personality. It's the core of your being. It's your bias. It's your bent. It's the way that you process. And so the heart thinks, it wills, it feels, it plots, it acts, it devises all kinds of schemes, and then it justifies the thing that it does. But at the end of the day, it's the heart that drives the desire. And you and I are not transformed until the heart has been changed. When the heart is changed, it's new, then we can say we are transformed. But up to that point, we're only suppressing desires we really want, we're just not acting on them. So you can tell yourself, I can imagine things, I can watch things, I can do things, I can think things, as long as I don't act on those things, and it's okay, but it's not okay because the desire has not been transformed. And you will find for the rest of your life that you feel like you're living a hypocritic life. Why am I wanting to do one thing, but I'm forcing myself to do something else? Wouldn't you rather be in a place where you did exactly what you wanted to do, and it ended up leading to life and vitality instead of chaos and destruction? So the heart is changed when our deepest longings and our immediate desires are in alignment. It's changed not simply by being reprogrammed, but by being realigned. Here's what I mean. Inside of every one of us, you guys, God has given us deep-seated longings. These are natural. He put them there. You have a deep-seated longing for security. You have a longing for intimacy. You have a longing to be significant 
But you also have short-term, fleeting, transient desires to feel or do something. So you have a desire for power because you long to be significant. And the desire for power will act wrongly unless it's informed. You have a desire for intimacy, which is holy, but you have a short-term desire to do this or that with someone with whom you are not committed in marriage. It's out of alignment. That's the problem. When you do what you want to do right now, it doesn't lead to the kind of life that you want because that's not where those desires go. Are you still tracking? Because it's quiet. You're mad, lost, or thinking. So the transformation process is getting to a place where we can say, I deeply and truly desire to do these things right now, and over time those things lead to my deepest longing. Wise people will sacrifice the immediate for the long-term gain. Fools will mortgage the future for a short-term win. The difference between the wise and the foolish is that wise people lead their desires. Foolish people follow them. Wise people get in front of their desires and foolish people get behind them. Wise people inform their desires and foolish people are informed by their desires. So if you think about it, the most prominent thought regarding desire in our country today is that we are just born with it, that it is innate and that it is fixed and that the only thing we can really decide is whether or not we should act on it. But in reality, we know that desire can itself be shaped. You can't control it, but you can influence it and you can bend it. You can't just hand it something brand new, but you can set the environment so that over time it takes what you wished you could have given it. So how do we do this? I read through Proverbs again and looked for verses that inform the training of desire. And notice that they fall into two categories, you guys. One of those is the category of discipline, and the other of restraint. When we discipline ourselves, we train ourselves to learn new things, and when we restrain ourselves, we untrain ourselves to unlearn old things. So discipline is all about movement and momentum and progress, and restraint is all about boundaries and borders that we won't let something encroach into our life. 
Restraint is about not going into the water so deep that we get swept away. And discipline is learning how to swim so that if you get swept away, you can still make your way to the periphery. When I was a kid, I grew up in a holiness church. And that was a tremendous advantage, a really big plus for me to understand uh, or try to this transformation process. As I look back at it now, I notice that so much of what the church wanted to give me always came at the end of a prayer. And so at the end of a service, when the altar call was given and we came and prayed, some of you don't even know what that is, but we came and prayed at like one of these altars in order to be changed. Nobody said it, but the implication was that it really took prayer and consecration and full surrender to transform the heart. But, but the reality was that on Monday or Tuesday after the prayer, the hundredth one, I mean, I would go back and the same inclinations and the drives and the desires were there. I wasn't acting on those things, but they were still there and I still felt this dissonance, the inside what I know is right and the outside what I want to do. And I couldn't get them into alignment and only one of two things was wrong, I thought. Either something was wrong with me, I didn't pray it right, I didn't have enough faith, or something was wrong with prayer. It wasn't as powerful or as magical as the evangelist said it was. What I know now is that while prayer is an integral part of the transformation process, it also includes discipline and restraint. So imagine me a few years ago growing up with all kinds of restraints but never learning new disciplines. So while I was withholding sins, I really couldn't think or feel differently about them. I didn't know better. I would relapse back and forth and I would feel like I was two-faced. What happens sometimes in another generation is that we will learn all kinds of disciplines. Getting better is all about training and growing and movement, but it's not tied to restraint. We speak so much of love's permission, but what about love's restraint? What won't love let us do? So these are the two things, and here's how you might practice them. First, in regards to restraint, begin to teach your heart a new set of words that it may not know. Every time you go to tell your heart, again, you can't go in and do that anymore. Draw a boundary. Don't let yourself do that. You will, it will fight with you. I'm warning you. It will tell you that you're going to be old and boring and not have any fun. But understand that the people who aren't doing the things that you want to do are not all legalists. Some of them are having a really good life. They're enjoying life to the max. They just don't give themselves permission to do what you give yourself permission to do, and so they don't ever feel the current too strong. You will tell yourself, why can't I do this? That isn't wrong. But you understand, 
Proverbs isn't about what's right and wrong. It's about what's wise and foolish. It's about what's smart and stupid. So you can do something that is morally acceptable and it can still be stupid because it leads to things that you cannot control. So start setting boundaries earlier in the process than you perhaps think you need to set them. Teach yourself new words. Here's a few. Less. So when you go to indulge and supersize and say, that was fun, let's have even more. Less. Here's one. Wait. In a culture of speed, in a culture of now, you're tempted to say, why do we have to wait? Why can't we just wait? Here's one, rest. It's a culture of overcommitment and overengagement and passion and lunging into things. And if you really care about them, go full bore. Teach your heart rest. Here's one, quiet. So before you go online or on the smartphone and you start posting even more of your thoughts about this or that. Maybe let that word, you know, speak to the heart and just go, wait. Now, what you might do is put these on a three-by-five card and put them up in the place of your life where you are most likely to do those things, where you, where you kind of need something to say, no, not here, don't go in. So you might put, for instance, less in the area where you tend to overconsume, you might put weight, say, on the dash of your car when you're driving down the bypass, in all of these mopeds. Bless them. At 20 miles an hour, with somebody on back. And everything in you is saying, for crying out loud, can't you? Wait. rest in my home. I can come home and say, I've got 12 hours in so far. I bet I can get two more. Rest. Mine just says football. (laughs) Rest, pause, cease. Put maybe quiet next to your computer or, or next to your phone or Maybe just have it tattooed on your heart. I don't know. Not Put it in the place where you are most likely to lunge into something. Discipline. Discipline is the process of learning new moral habits that turn into patterns that make certain behaviors possible or likely. Let me say it again. Discipline is simply the process of establishing new moral habits that become patterns for you over time that inform your desires and your actions. Don't think of discipline as something that holds you back or something that's hard. I know you hate doing this, but discipline yourself. It's not really that. Discipline's like learning a new language. It's something that you 
want to do, and the more you do it, the better you get, and it opens possibilities that weren't open to you too long ago. In the 1930s, in the place called Ushaw, just outside of Durham, in a large Roman Catholic seminary, was a student uh, named Gerald Culkin. One night he was reading a play by Anton Chekhov, a Russian writer, and he loved the play so much that he went down and he got a copy of the book, Teach Yourself Russian. And so he started to teach himself Russian. And every night when the classes were over and all the students would go back and play billiards, Gerald would go back to his room and with enthusiasm, he's reading how to teach himself Russian, and he gets to the place by the time he graduates and is ordained that he can read Russian pretty fluently, and then he gets stationed over in Beirut as an army chaplain, and there he runs into several Russians who are speaking Russian, and it occurs to him that while he can read Russian, he can't speak it very fluently, and so he spends the next two years of his life learning to speak Russian as fluently as he could read it, and one night at the end of a long day in a hard battle, several casualties and injuries he comes back to his room and someone says, before you retire for the night, there's one more person, just one that I need you to see. He doesn't have long to live. He's been wounded. And so Gerald goes over to see this patient and he sits next to him. He begins to speak to him in English and the man is unresponsive. It occurs to him soon. He doesn't speak English. And so he starts speaking to him in Italian, what little he knows, and then in French, and then in German, and even in Arabic, fumbling around with the languages, and the man is unresponsive. And then he notices that the man, with great effort, begins to make the sign of the cross only in the orthodox way. And he thinks to himself, I wonder if the man is Russian. And so he speaks to the man in Russian, and he finds out that he is. And for the next few moments, he starts having conversations with this dying soldier in his own language. He's able to lead him in confession and in absolution of his sins. He leads him in the Lord's Prayer. He reads him the last rites, all in Russian, and holds the man's hand while he dies. When Samuel Wells tells this story, he says, one goes back to the early part of Gerald's life, when instead of playing billiards with his friends after class, out of his own enthusiasm, began to read, teach yourself Russian. One imagines the course that his life would have taken if he'd have pursued one set of desires instead of another. He said, in fact, one may think that his entire life was a preparation for that last hour with a dying man. And when I read this story, I thought this week, I wonder how many things that I started a long time ago because I really believed in them. They were good disciplines. And I've just let them go because I thought they were either not necessary or I just don't have time. I bet that's true of you. I bet you wanted to do something that you really believe in something some ability, some skill, something you hope to get back to someday. 
And if you could do it, it would open up new possibilities for you. You can't see them yet, but it probably would. But life's taken over, hasn't it? It's busy. There's a lot of stuff going on. Maybe you go back and you pick that up. Maybe you say, I'll find a time, I'll just say that's more important to me than something else. And the more that you do it, your love for it will begin to grow and the doors may fling open. There are others of you this morning who are in too deep. You're into something perhaps that you ought not be in, at least not that deep. And I implore you, before you get pulled away again into a current that you will want to justify, set new boundaries that will keep you in waters that are safe. Do not follow impulses and desires that lead to places you don't want to go. Train your heart and restrain your heart to stay in good places.